Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the September 2020 edition of Outward. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate, and I'd like to thank the COVID-19 pandemic for my third ever gray hair. She debuted, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, at least that's when I noticed her. She's about an inch long, and she's taking up space in the very center of my forehead, sticking out like a unicorn horn. So put me on your pride koozie. Oh my God, welcome gray hair. Yeah. Christina, I feel like I could give you some Susan Sontag vibes if you play play this right. Mm -hmm. From your mouth to goddess's ears. (laughs) I'm Ramon Alam. I am also one of the co-hosts of Slate's working podcast, and I am having a slightly prolonged panic attack realizing that the presidential election, I don't even want to count the days because the presidential election is coming up very soon and I'm trying my best not to think about it too much. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm Brian Lauder, editor of Outward, and my Virgo powers are crazy strong right now. So don't be surprised if after this podcast, you find all of your phone apps neatly grouped by type, as they should have been all along. So it's back to school time. And right now, that means Zoom meetings and lots of worksheets. But The truth is that personally, after a lifetime of being a student, September always finds me ready to sharpen my pencils, to get a new notebook, to sit up straight and take notes, you know? And I actually took so many notes. I was underlining furiously when I read Angela Chen's Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. It's a really interesting book, and Angela will join us today for a conversation about a book that documents her own process of discovery, she identifies as ace, and argues for an expanded understanding of sexual identity. But if Chen shows us that our understanding of sex is ever-evolving, you don't have to look any further than our politics to see just how slow that evolution can be. Later, we're going to talk about the particular pitfalls faced by candidates seeking office when it comes to reconciling a queer identity with the standards we're constantly told that all elected officials must meet, even if so many of them, straight or queer, fail to. Then, of course, we'll have our usual updates to the gay agenda, the queer stuff we're most excited about this month. But we begin, as we always do, with our pride and provocations. Christina, would you like to go first this month? Sure. So mine is a little non-traditional for Pride and Provocation because a queer person didn't do this, to my knowledge, although it's (laughs) certainly possible. Um, And in some ways, this is an easy target. But I have been consumed with rage, extraordinarily provoked by the wildfire in California started by a gender reveal party. So far, the El Dorado fire has burned more than 12,000 acres of land. And you know what? This isn't even the first time that a gender reveal explosion, because that's what we're doing now to reveal the sex, not the gender, of our fetuses. 
has caused a wildfire. There was also uh, in Arizona in April 2017, an off-duty border patrol agent, which I'd like to speak to the author of that satire because uh, her signifiers are a little on the nose, uh, burned up almost 47,000 acres of land, resulting in $8 million in damages, burned up some national forest. So gender reveals or sex reveals, as our producer Daniel Schrader kindly reminded me, are already suspect. I don't need to tell you guys why, you know. Um, But in the gender reveal parties that start a wildfire at a time when people are being constantly told in places like California and Arizona to watch themselves because it's wildfire season, this is like the ne plus ultra of masculinizing domesticity, (laughs) draping an infant announcement in amateur explosive devices and it's done with such reckless disregard for human life or even just basic consequences of one's actions that to me it feels like a deliberate fuck you to humanity and engaging in this ritual of you know predetermined gendered expectations in the most destructive and dangerous way dry brush be damned you know just emphasizes to me how much certain people don't care about the way their actions affect the people around them. So I'll I'll end this just by saying that, you know, for anyone <laughs> living in California right now, you know, I'm I I really hope that that these wildfires draw to a close and that, you know, everyone's staying safe, but um all I can do right now is just be provoked inside my home. I mean, that's a very righteous provocation and as you say, like, you hear this joke a lot, but it's really true. Like, whoever's writing this script is, like, <laughs> a very lazy writer. You know, yeah, like, the notion yeah. that, that these two particular, that one, like, noisome social ill, which is the gender reveal party, could actually lead to disaster. It's just, I mean, what are what is going on in this country? You know, like... If you're about to do a gender reveal party with an explosive device, maybe Google to see if one has ever started a wildfire before. If you're about to do one in a place where wildfires are common during wildfire season. I mean, nothing says I'm excited about the birth of a new child like an explosive (laughs) device. Yeah, the gender binary really destroys the world. Yeah, (laughs) That's all. Yet more evidence. Oh, my God. How are you guys feeling this month? Somebody give me a pride. Well, I personally am feeling very proud. Um, We were on vacation for a very long time, which you guys know. Uh, My family just sort of like headed for the hills and spent four weeks away. Uh, Absolutely no regrets. And um, I was mostly ignoring the news of the world while I was away. Um, To whatever, to the extent that such a thing is even possible when you have a cell phone in your pocket. One piece of news that did make it inside of my bubble was the news that the actor Nisi Nash had married a woman named Jessica Betts. Um, oh, yes. I, I don't Yay. know. I, it's hard for me to explain to you guys why Nisi, why I'm fond of Nisi Nash. First of all, she just she has incredible charisma. She's an extremely charismatic person. And she's actually a very gifted performer. She was in a show called Getting On that I really loved. And she played a nurse. And her performance is very understated and very different from her presentation as a reality TV show host. But that's really how I knew her. Um, There was a, a kind of a golden period that I remember very fondly before my husband and I had kids when we were first cohabiting. And uh, we would, we had such a like gay 
schedule. Like we would get up on Sundays, like a little bit late. We would go to the gym. We would go like get a bagel and then come home and watch, like turn on the TV and watch this ridiculous show that Nisi Nash hosted called Clean House. And really and truly the show is about going a team of people who go to dirty houses and clean them. It's deeply satisfying. And part of what makes it it a reality show. It's a reality show. I mean, I need this show now. You don't, Brian. You're Virgo power. You don't need this show. It is for people who are like Nisi Nash would clean people. She wouldn't clean it. She was the host, and a team, like a team of a team of organizers and decorators, would come in and sort of like clean out your cluttered kitchen and clean out your messy living room or whatever. And just there's something deeply satisfying about watching it. And part of the reason it's so satisfying is that Nisi Nash really sold it. Like she's just vivacious. She's funny she has a she's she's got a lot of charisma and so she's someone who i've always felt extremely fond of because she reminds me of this sort of golden period in our married life before we you know before before we became a family and before you know you know these days i would never sit and watch a reality show in the middle of the afternoon so it reminds me of this period of time when i would so i'm very fond of her Nisi Nash had previously been married to a man. I don't actually know how she identifies her sexuality now. Um, What she said in a quote for People magazine was, my marriage has absolutely nothing to do with gender and has everything to do with her soul. She's the most beautiful soul I have ever met in my life. And while I am normally provoked by celebrity equivocation around identity, I find this just utterly charming because I really love Nisi Nash and I wish her and Jessica Betts a lifetime of happiness. Yeah, there is something so gratifying of loving a celebrity, which I too love Niecy Nash. I know June Thomas does too. We both loved her in Claws. Like loving somebody and not even suspecting necessarily that their family, just feeling a connection to them and then finding later on that they're queer. It's just such a wonderful feeling, like almost like serendipity. Yes, it's like, oh, she's one of ours. We get to claim. Not, yeah. like, not only do I love her, I get to claim her as like right. a sister. And it's just, it's there's something very lovable about her. And um, you know what? The news is so bad these days that I will take any moment of like joy to hold on to. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's here, so beautiful. Um, I'm sorry, guys. I'm going to let you finish the episode because I have to go watch all of Clean House. <laughs> <laughs> Highly recommend. It seems like Highly you recommend. could host a reboot during <laughs> Virgo season. <laughs> I could. Um, okay, so for I, I'm also proud this month, um, and I'm proud specifically of an email that I'm just going to read to you that was uh, shared with us by June Thomas, um, and it, I think it's maybe the most important email I've ever gotten. Okay, ready? There's new research that shows LGBTQIA Americans are turning to bidets as an alternative to toilet paper costs and concerns. That's important with more homeschooling and or working from home. A new study from, I'm not going to say their name, a new study from someone reports that 44.2% of LGBTQIA Americans have used a bidet and would seem to enjoy them as a whopping 80% of LGBTQIA respondents find normal toilets unsatisfactory after using a bidet, and 70% feel that water cleans better than toilet paper. Notably, 65% of LGBTQIA Americans are concerned about the impact of toilet paper on the environment, and 317 are concerned about the roughness of toilet paper, <laughs> and more than 50% are concerned about it containing bleach or artificial scents. 
Um, additionally, 88% of all respondents said they would rather wait to use their own bidet as opposed to a regular toilet. And almost 45% said they, they'll definitely have a bidet on their holiday gift or personal what? shopping list this year. Um, new information, new What's statistics. What's the sample size here? <laughs> I don't dare open the study. I, I would never look. Uh, but it is just, it is. it makes me very proud to know that our community is so committed to uh, cleanliness and the bidet. So We're that. really at the forefront yeah. of the bidet lifestyle. We're always there first. Really. We're always there first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So there. <laughs> Concerned about the roughness of toilet paper. I mean, no one can say we don't have our priorities in order. <laughs> We're a very woke, woke community, you know, about, about such, such concerns. Yeah. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Angela Chen is a science journalist who realized she was asexual in her early 20s. She's just published a new book called Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. And the book is many different things. It's a primer on asexuality and all its related sub-identities. It's a piece of reporting that chronicles the experiences of dozens of people around the world on the asexual spectrum. And it's a bit of social commentary on how asexual lives can offer new insight into how we've constructed our own popular narratives of attraction, sex drive, and human relationships. Angela, we are so happy to have you here today. Welcome to Outward. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to chat with everyone. So I know we have several ACE listeners. Um, We had quite a few people write in with questions about their own asexuality when we asked for listener questions a few episodes back. But I'm sure a lot of our allosexual listeners that is, people who do experience desire for sex with other people, might not know much about all the ways that asexuality can manifest. So can you just give us a quick intro into what asexuality is and what it's not? You know, can aces enjoy sex? Can they be kinky? That kind of thing? Absolutely. So the definition is someone who's asexual is someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction, which sounds kind of intuitive, but then it gets complicated because it doesn't mean what you might think it might mean. So the key thing, I think, is that it is possible to not experience sexual attraction without being repulsed by sex. I think many people intuitively are like, oh, if you're asexual, then you just don't want to have sex at all. It's not interesting to you. But that wasn't the case for me, which is partly why it took until I was in my 20s until I had two you know, sexual romantic relationships to realize I was ace. So definitely there are people who are asexual and they're sex repulsed. There are people who are what we call sex indifferent. And to them, it's just not something that they, they don't feel sexual attraction toward others, but they might want to have sex for emotional reasons. You know, the same way everyone has sex for emotional reasons, to feel close or because they're bored or because they want to feel attractive. Definitely there are aces who are kinky, there are aces who enjoy sex, there are aces who want to be in relationships, there are aces who don't experience romantic attraction. So there's really this huge umbrella of what asexuality can mean. And so much of it is around this question of what is attraction, which is 
once you get into it, so much more complicated than I think any of us realized. Were you aware of all that complexity when you went into writing this book? I mean, one thing that's so interesting is as you write, I mean, the idea of asexuality as an identity with a community only really came about in the 2000s. So the people you call elders are only in their 30s right now. So there must have been so much to learn. Absolutely. So I knew this when I was writing the book, but I didn't know this when I was first realizing my sexuality. I'd come across the, the word in my teens and I just never really thought about it again because I too thought that being asexual meant, oh, you don't like sex. And as a teen, I was interested in sex and it was interesting to me, how could I be asexual? And it was only through digging deeper than what I saw in the quote unquote mainstream media that was I was able to realize all of these nuances. You're definitely right. You know, people who are asexual have been around since before the community, since before there was this specific term for it. But it really was the internet that facilitated the modern asexual movement, bringing people together to actually talk about the definition and what it means and all of these discussions that I hope we have and will continue to have. One of the subjects of your book is a, an artist named Lucid Brown, who describes coming across a letter to Dear Abby from an asexual reader. And they describe seeing this letter in the newspaper at age 13 and then stealing the newspaper from the dining room table this felt really, really familiar to me as someone who was once a gay teen, kind of reading the tea leaves of the culture for some validation of the self. And you write about this a little bit, but I'd love to hear you talk about the tension or the complication around understanding ace identity as queer by virtue of its difference from what you also call in the book compulsory heterosexuality, which I'd love to talk about also. Um, just to make sure I understand your question, is this about kind of where asexuality fits in the queer umbrella? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that's kind of a delicate question. I have kind of a line in the book that's a little bit of a throwaway line, and maybe I should have elaborated on it more, where I say that today, overall, asexuality is accepted as part of the queer umbrella, the broader LGBTQ plus umbrella, but it feels conditional in many ways. And I think there's a discussion among people whether people who are ace and heteromantic, you know, romantically attracted to the opposite gender, should be considered queer. I believe that aces are queer, but I wanted to, you know, point out that in some ways this is not a subtle question. And I think that there's this understanding, this idea that because asexuality in many ways is invisible, and invisibility gives you this form of protection. You know, asexuality, it feels like you don't need to come out. It feels like if you're on the street with your partner, many times you, you are not going to be a target in the same way. That in many ways being asexual doesn't require feeling like you need to hide yourself in the way that has been the case for many of the other identities in the queer umbrella. And so I think that there is that discussion about where does asexuality fit? Um, what, what connects people in the queer community? What does that mean? It's also, I think there's this question of resources and there's this feeling of scarcity. So every ACE activist I've said has always said, we don't want to take resources away from you know, people who are trans or people who are homeless. There's, it, it doesn't seem like this competitive thing to us. We're not saying we're the most oppressed, but we feel like we are in many ways outside of you know, heteronormative straight culture and we want to build coalitions and we want to be part of that. And 
but despite that, like I think many aces, especially heteromantic race aces, struggle with the feeling of feeling queer enough. Almost every hetero ace I've spoken to has said, oh, I completely support all other hetero aces identifying as queer if they want, but I feel afraid because I feel like, am I taking away from the struggle? So I think these discussions around gatekeeping, what actually connects the community are very, very much alive here. And also I want to mention, of course, there are people who are ace and biromantic, there are people who are ace and non-binary and trans. So, you know, the ace itself is very diverse and there's a lot of cross-cutting identities. Ramon earlier brought up the term compulsory sexuality. We, we know that uh, the term compulsory heterosexuality comes from Adrian Rich, but can you explain how you sort of built on that in, in the book with this other term of yours? Absolutely. And the term compulsory sexuality definitely builds off the Adrian Rich idea. So that's, you know, an homage. And I think it's just the idea that everyone who is normal wants sex and desires it. Um, well, they desire it in a society-approved way, you know, like, of course, kink and so on is, is still marginalized. And the example that I always think of is another person I interviewed, someone named Hunter, who grew up in this religious environment, and he is hetero, he is only attracted, romantically attracted to women, so he fulfills the compulsory hetero part of compulsory heterosexuality, but it was sexuality itself. Even though he's attracted to women, he wasn't super into sex, and that made him feel like there was something wrong with him, you know, that everything had been taught about how good sex was, and how you were only an adult if you loved sex, and how if you're only a real man if you loved sex, that really made him feel like he was broken. And I think that is an easy way to kind of understand that. And, you know, there's so many other examples, like low sexual desire is medicalized. You know, the FDA is trying to sell and approve drugs for, for low sexual desire. And of course, that's telling you that there's something wrong with you. It's in the DSM. Or for women, again, if you say that you're not that into sex, oftentimes very well-meaning people will say, oh, you just, you need to free yourself from shame. You need to like be in touch with your true self and throw off the chains of patriarchy, which is definitely true sometimes, but sometimes you're just not that into sex and it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you or that your life is going to be worse if that's not a source of pleasure for you. You mentioned um, the particular nebulous line between asexual identity and a sort of medical disordering by the establishment. Can you talk a little bit about what hypoactive sexual desire disorder is and where the ace community sits in relation to that particular approach to curing or you know, medicalizing sexual identity? Absolutely. So hypoactive sexual desire disorder is, is well, first it's been split into a different name, but it is an entry in the DSM, which is basically the Bible of psychiatric diagnosis. And it basically sounds like asexuality. It is considered disorder, and the symptoms are things like persistent lack of sexual interest, lack of sexual imagery, and it essentially medicalizes and makes asexuality a psychiatric problem. And so, of course, when there's something like that in the DSM, it's very easy to say, oh, you're not asexual. That's not a orientation. It's not an identity. It, this is just some kind of medical problem, some kind of psychiatric problem you have, and you should get that fixed and try some drugs or try therapy. And of course, as I think you all know, homosexuality was also in the DSM for a very long time. So I think that's a pretty clear parallel. So there have been these efforts to try to find what is the line between identity and disorder when it comes to asexuality. And one criteria is distress. You know, if you feel bad about it, then you have a disorder. If you don't feel bad about it, then it's an identity, which makes no 
sense because I think it's totally possible to be asexual and think there's nothing wrong with being asexual, but you still, you can feel bad about it, right? Because there's prejudices and some parts of your life are harder. And the other part is that there actually is an exception in the DSM called the asexual exception. And it's saying if this person identifies as asexual, then they're asexual. They don't have this disorder, which sounds good. And I suppose it's better than nothing, but it's just kind of philosophically weird to me. It's like, I feel like maybe you don't have this disorder no matter what, even if you don't identify, you know, like, is this a problem or not? You can't make identity the answer to whether this is a problem. Yeah. And I mean, if I think about what might happen if we stopped saying there was a normal level of sexual desire or that a low sex drive is something to fix, like it would completely explode our understanding of sexuality. And there's other parts of your book and other parts of the way asexuals or the asexual community has thought about relationships that I think have the potential to explode other ways that we think about relationships. For instance, when I think about asexuality as part of the LGBTQ umbrella, I think asexuality is very like um, embodied in a way that other sexualities aren't. So when you say, you know, a woman's a lesbian, you're usually talking about her physical desires and her, you know, emotional, uh, mental desires to have romantic connections with a woman. But when you say someone's asexual, you're really only talking about the physical part and they may be romantically attracted to, you know, men, women, any other gender of person. Um, And how do you think that that, you know, separating the physical desire from any other types of relationships you might um, want to have with people could possibly change the way we organize ourselves as as human beings? I think it really makes us question what is the difference between romantic and sexual attraction, which was a chapter in the book and probably my favorite chapter because I think it's so fascinating to think about. You know, because most people are like, oh, I know that's romantic because I want to have sex with them, regardless of whether I'm actually having sex with them. You know, that is like the dividing line. And of course, there are aces who experience romantic attraction, but they are indifferent to sex or they just are actively repulsed to sex by sex. And that just calls into question like, what is the difference? And once you start questioning that, you're like, oh, we structure so much of our society specifically around romantic sexual relationships. You know, you can marry someone romantic who you feel romantically toward and give them health insurance, but you can't, you know, marry your mom and give her health insurance, even though you might care about her a lot more than, you know, someone, uh, some other person. And so I think that brings up all of these questions about the way in which society is is set up. And one thing you said, I completely agree that asexuality is in many ways more embodied. And I think that's one of the challenges when it comes to the invisibility part of asexuality. Because I think there's this sense that when you're coming out, it really does feel like you're talking about your sex life. You know, like you can say it's not a it's not necessarily about like who you're romantically attracted to, which yeah, feels like pure like love is love. Yeah. yeah, it's not love is love. Yeah. Like I the funny thing is I I'm out in the sense that we're having this conversation. The book is coming out. I'm not out to my parents, and I just do not want to talk to them about it. And that's another struggle when coming out for a lot of people who are ace. It, there really is a kind of, you know, keep that to yourself. Like, what, is, what does that matter? That doesn't affect me kind of thing. Well, it's very personal. Yeah. Did you find it difficult, Angela, to write about this material? Because 
you are writing sort of like as a sociologist or as a journalist taking a broad view of a, of a community, but you're also writing about your own personal experience with that. Was that difficult for you? That was really difficult. I am primarily a science and tech reporter, and I think that's partly because I like to hide behind the ideas in science and tech. I always knew that I was going to write from a personal perspective. First, because I think it was important that people know that an ace person was writing a book about aces, but also because I think there's things that I can convey there. Like I think talking about my um, struggles with accepting asexuality, or sometimes I had judgmental thoughts about asexuality that I didn't intellectually endorse, but I still felt, I felt like that brought an honesty that was helpful for the book, but it felt very uncomfortable for me. It's not professionally what I'm necessarily used to doing. And it, yeah, in a way I was always like, am I, am I oversharing or is this helpful? So yeah, that was difficult. Well, I found it very helpful, and I thought it was very brave. And yeah, I think I think same. it's really um, it is it is different to understand the that as a reporter, as as the author, that you have a particular investment or insight into the subject that you're writing about. And I have to confess that um, you know I I'm I want to believe in my own impulse toward inclusivity, right? I want to, and I have, would always have thought like, of course, asexuality belongs in the larger sort of queer umbrella that sort of string of initials that we use, right? Um, and I would never have argued with that. But but what your book presented is it, you have to reconcile this challenge to something that is so foundational intellectually, which is this tension that it is possible to exist inside of a romantic relationship that does not prioritize sex. And it's just... The book shows the extent to which society has intertwined those two things and then used them as the foundations for a host of things, right? Like, whether you're talking about tax law or, like, the person who's going to come collect you from the hospital if you're in an accident, right? We just assume that that is going to be the person with whom you are sexually intimate and that's the person with whom you're romantically intimate. And your book challenges that understanding. And in a way that I think is really wonderful. And it made me feel like I had really learned something about the thing that I tell myself I believe in, which is that sexuality is a very broad spectrum and it's impossible to just understand it as a matter of like a couple of categories. Absolutely. And I think that's what I was trying to do is because I think anyone who, well, not anyone, I think most people would, you know, say I believe asexuality is part of the LGBT umbrella, but then once you get into the specifics, and this is true for anything, this can be any topic, once you get into the specifics, you think about it much more and you start to see the ways in which maybe you're resisting an idea or that you paid lip service to it. And this goes for me too, you know, there were parts of asexuality that I felt confused by or I felt like I didn't understand. But, you know, one of the most common misconceptions about asexuality is that it means you don't want romantic relationships, right? Even though the word is asexual. And just the fact that that is a misconception shows that we just completely couple sex and romance in our society on the level of language, too. I think that's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Angela. Angela's book is called Ace, What Asexuality Reveals About Desire, Society, and the Meaning of Sex. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. 
all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. On Death, Sex, and Money, we feature interviews with you, our community of listeners, getting honest about uncomfortable things. I developed an illness where it isn't safe for me to drive. A friend once said to me, sex is like air. You don't think about it until you're not getting enough. This is a similar sort of thing if you just replace sex with driving. Listen to Death, Sex, and Money wherever you get podcasts. Until relatively recently, being queer meant a career in American politics was out of the question. Thankfully, that's no longer true, but the slow opening up of political opportunity to LGBTQ people doesn't mean our campaigns for office are treated the same as our straight or cis counterparts. Just ask Alex Morris. The progressive 31-year-old openly gay mayor of Holyoke, Massachusetts, just lost a bid in that state's Democratic primary for a seat in the House of Representatives. And it's clear that malicious scrutiny and misrepresentation of his dating life, the most damaging of which emerged from his own party, is at least partially responsible for the loss. Today, we'll use Morse's experience as a launch pad into a discussion about the public's expectations of queer politicians, what homophobia in politics looks like today, and, because this is outward, if the Buttigiegs among us are the only ones who have a shot at power. Brian, before we just start, I wonder if you could just give me a crash course in who Alex Morse is and exactly what happened during his campaign. Absolutely, yeah. So this is this is a really um, convoluted story for those who haven't been following it, but I will do my best. So like I said, Morse uh, was a, he's the mayor of Holyoke, Massachusetts, and he was running for the House of Representatives in the Democratic primary there um, to unseat an, a very powerful incumbent. Um, and so he was well into that campaign. And then in early August, the UMass Amherst student paper reported that the college Dems had disinvited Morris from future events, claiming, quote, numerous incidents of unwanted and inappropriate advances uh, towards students. And we should note that Morris uh, was a uh, adjunct professor there in the past. So when this this uh, accusation came out in the paper, he acknowledged having had consensual relationships with students who were all of age, but none with anyone uh, that he had taught at the school, which is the policy there. Um, and he also apologized for anyone that he had made feel uncomfortable, but overall denied that anything improper had happened, right? The university opened an investigation. Some of the progressive groups that had endorsed him uh, dropped their support or said that they were reconsidering it. Then, uh, a little bit later, subsequent reporting by The Intercept revealed that members of the College Gems group had actually plotted ways to damage Morse's campaign uh, in private, and that, and that they also had expressed that they wanted, some of them had expressed that they wanted to support the incumbent, uh, Richard Neal. 
So that part is very complicated. There are a lot of details. We will post links on the show page where you can get into it. But what basically appears to have, have happened is that the students understood that stirring up a sexual scandal around this gay man, however vague and unsubstantiated that scandal is, uh, would be enough to undermine him. Um, and we should say there continues to be no strong evidence that any of the things happened that they said happened. And the students who were involved in these accusations have gone largely silent. So uh, anyway, <laughs> all of that said, he he did lose. And it seems like this was at least part of, of why he lost his uh, his primary. So I thought we could just start with, with the question of, you know, why do we think this maneuver, whatever, however it worked out, was so appealing to the people who, who started it? I mean, I find it wholly unsurprising. So when when Pete Buttigieg was seeking the Democratic presidential nomination, I remember feeling like, oh, he could be undone by a sex scandal in a way that you couldn't imagine uh, Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren or any of the heterosexual candidates being undone by a sex scandal. Not, you know, not as a matter of my own sort of discomfort with queer sexuality, but just this idea that like, the American public will only go so far, right? Like, we have a sexual offender sitting in the White House right now, but that transgression just doesn't... It pales somehow in comparison to the notion of homosexual transgression. Even though what you describe Morse having done in these vague ways is, like, a little icky, but not, like... It's not really a transgression. I mean, it's not as though he were a high school teacher, Well, yeah. So I have to say, even I, and I don't profess to be any sort of prude, I felt a little bit like, why did he have to have relationships with students? You know, like, pick anyone else or like, you're older than them. And that seems like a power dynamic that I would not accept if it was a heterosexual cis man having relationships with an undergrad who was a woman. But I I mean, I don't think it's inappropriate enough. It it wasn't against school policy. I don't think it should have been enough to warrant his resignation from the primary or anything. At the same time, there was a part of me that was like, well, maybe I should have different standards because there are different standards in the gay community. And, you know, there, there long have been in especially in communities of gay men where like, age differences, power imbalances are a little bit more accepted. Maybe that's wrong. Yeah, I'm, I'm very torn about it too, but I'm torn about being torn, right? Like, like I feel like, you know, there, there was part of me that was like, yeah, why would you, if you if you knew that you were had political aspirations like this, and especially beyond the sort of local, the local level, and you knew that people always, you know, there's all, people are always digging for dirt. There's always author mm-hmm. research, right? And, it's, and and we know that this happens to gay people much more, maybe more so than other people. Then why would you even put yourself at risk by, by doing that, right? Like, why? But then my by saying that, I am basically asking all gay politicians to have the kind of wholesome, like, blank personal life that like Mayor Pete had, right? And that we all that we all sort of chuckled about a little bit. Like and and we're and sort of found yeah. you know a bit distasteful or or suspect or something, right? Although I mean I guess I'd say I guess my counter argument to you is that maybe it's testament to Morse's actual humanity that he's not approaching his life through the calculus of like political advancement. Like The damning part of this is his homosexuality, I think, because I think that the public 
definitely accepts this kind of age and power imbalance in heterosexual relationships, at least when it's the man who is the older, more authoritative one marrying a younger woman. We are so accustomed to this particular type of coupling that it barely even registers. I just don't think that's true anymore. I mean, maybe I'm just so far gone into like the Me Too movement <laughs> and the like woke America that my response is not typical, but I feel like I would be way more incensed if this were a straight man and a younger woman undergrad than I am at the gay version of that. Well, I can't, I can't decide. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, to me, it just feels like it's discomforting because it feels dirty because he is gay. And that feels very different to me than like the, the sort of me too power dynamics, which, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm just, maybe this isn't unanswerable. I do want to unpack something you said, Brian, in Please. light of the conversation we just had with Angela, which, you know, you, as we were mulling this over as a possible topic, you were like, you know, you put him on a spectrum, you put Morse on a spectrum with Pete Buttigieg, like the tale of two mayors. There's, um, you know, Pete Buttigieg, whose romantic history with Chaston could not be more acceptable unless maybe they had met in church or something. You know, they like met on a dating app that was not Grindr. It was not Grindr. I believe Hinge. (laughs) You know, and now they have this reputedly monogamous marriage. Um, and, And then there's Alex Morse, who like was on a dating app, dating students and... um, And just having casual sex. Like, I think think we should put it... Has he said that? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So having having sex. Mm -hmm. And yet you look at his Tinder profile and it's him in an office in a suit. There's a photo of him with Hillary Clinton in the foreground. The messages he sent that were screenshotted were so innocuous that actually they're not that far apart. I would say Buttigieg and Morse are not that far apart. And yet you made the point that a lot of us looked at Pete Buttigieg's, you know, public sexual history, if you want to call it that, and felt a little bit like, that's I don't recognize that in a way that I wouldn't feel, you know, judgy about a straight politician's sex life because it's not like mine at all. So, like, I kind of don't care about it. But because peace was close enough to mine that I felt like I should identify mm. with it, my inability to identify with it felt wrong to me. And then what we were just talking about with Angela, the idea of compulsory sexuality and the sense that transgressive sexuality somehow makes you more progressive. I I feel guilty of that in terms of how we've looked at Pete Buttigieg. I happen to have just read uh, Chastin Buttigieg's memoir, I Have Something to Tell You. um, And do you have something to tell us about? Chastin has a lot to tell us. Um, And we have all been critical of Buttigieg, but I do think that there's a lot of power in what he and his spouse, Chastin, were able to accomplish simply by existing, right? And this book is an argument for their significance, right? Like that they existed, that it mattered. And it's clearly also, they're they're both... So Pete no longer holds elective office. Chastin doesn't have a sort of formal role in American society. And like, the, the you know, the political memoir is always a way to reposition, you know, yourself. And this book very much feels like a tool establishing a way of thinking about Chastin as a public figure for whatever their future holds. I read this book very closely and very attentively thinking about the depiction or the presentation, I should say, of their own homosexuality. And Chastin, you know, he is 
there there is something likable about him. Like he is very charming, but his insistence on presenting himself as a kind of salt of the earth Midwestern type who's interested in fishing, who's interested in hunting, who grew up in a household full of boys. Like, his insistence on underlining that stuff feels to me like it reifies that that is somehow apart from a public perception of what it is to be gay. And that feels to me very political and very calculated. And it's almost like the book is just a reminder that, like, yeah, I'm gay, but I'm also just like your cousin in Michigan. And... I'm not saying that's not authentically who he is, but what? But it did leave me feeling like, oh, is this sort of the telegenic accepted way to be gay? That on your, you know, a few dates into their relationship, like they they have a kind of a special date where they go to church together with Pete's family, you know, like wow. things like that. Like they feel, and they are political people, right? Mayor Pete is an elect. He was at the time an elected official. Like so. What they are doing is approaching life in the way that Brian was sort of frustrated that Alex Morris hadn't, which is to think about how things looked, right? And I, I don't mean to put you on blast, Brian. Like, I don't think that's, I don't think that's wrong. Like, I think, yes, politicians need to take care, but in the process of taking care, are they then kind of like sweeping their homosexual identity, you know, or making it, or, or burnishing it and making it more palatable to, or or desexualized in some fashion. That does feel like the thing that is this the style of um, self narration that is sort of allowed for queer politicians right now versus what uh, Morse had sort of revealed about him. Which you know I don't think he was talking a lot about his his, his hookups or whatever before. But certainly once this happened, he has been, and he said, you know, I'm a man with a sex life. I'm a gay man with a sex life, right? And like that's that has been true, and I'm not ashamed of it. Um, and he had uh, this great quote that he gave to the New York Times, which is uh, that, quote, the expectation shouldn't be that we have to be a monogamous heteronormative relationships before we enter public life. Um, I, I feel like that is a wall that, that, that gay people are running up against right now, right? That like, if you have not constructed or lived by, you know, by in reality, this, this sort of storybook marriage equality kind of framed um, romantic life, then there's something just a, t- a touch sorted about you. Like forget, forget even the sort of, you know, in his specific case, the stuff about, about the college relationships uh, or the power relationships having to do with college. Like, even if, if I think even if there hadn't been that, if someone had found his grinder profile, right? So if he, you know, I don't know that he had a grinder yeah. profile, but like, if he had one, if you'd found, it would be like, ooh, he's like, he's like sexual, you know? He's, yeah, he's dirty. Um, yeah. And that, that, that does. I'm background to thinking that does frustrate me <laughs> a lot, even though, yeah. Well, I mean, part of so part of what has gotten so muddy is that obviously sexual behavior doesn't really inform a candidate's ability to be a just and moral leader with a conscience, right? Like it has, it's no bearing on their intellect, on their ability to legislate. It has nothing to do with anything, right? We've simply allowed morality, generally speaking, to become a part of how we weigh candidates. And that's not to say that morality has no place in the politics, but it just, there's no objective set of moral standards by which we are judging these candidates, right? Because, again, when you look at who occupies the, the Oval Office, 
versus like what happened to Senator Al Franken and his decision to resign from office or Representative Katie Hill and her decision decision to resign from office. Like these are all complicated cases that have to do with sex, but also have to do with things like power and decorum and corruption. Like there's a whole lot there, but the, the simple fact is that I think there are political forces in this country who have weaponized an understanding of sexual morality as like monogamous heterosexuality. Right. And that is like the model for it. And anything that exists outside of that including divorce, right, before Ronald Reagan became president, like, was just, a, a you know, a political no-go. And I'm not sure if that reflects, like, the voting public or if it just reflects, like, the desire of the GOP specifically to say that these are the standards by which candidates should be judged. Just on a closing note, our friends in the straight community are also dealing with their own sex scandals. We've got Jerry Falwell Jr., who has resigned his position at Liberty University because he allegedly loved watching his wife hook up with a young man who wasn't him. Do we consider that queer? Is that going to help open the door for future, you know, transgressive sex having politicians <laughs> and and public <laughs> figures to be themselves in public life? So... I don't care, obviously. It, it bears no, it has no effect on my life if a man and a woman, like if a husband and wife enjoy this kind of sexual activity, but I can't help but feel like, yeah, you hypocrite. Like I'm mad at you and I laugh at you and it's it's ridiculous and you should feel disgraced, even though I don't want anyone to feel disgraced over such an innocuous thing that's happening among consenting adults in private. The disgrace is not about their kink. The disgrace is about his just rank hypocrisy. Yeah. I mean that, I think, I think that's, I, I, I feel very capable of separating those two <laughs> things in my head. Um, and to answer your question, Christina, no, I, I don't know that, that, that moves the cause of sexual acceptance <laughs> forward anymore, but who knows, maybe, maybe Jerry will come out of this, um, you know, a changed, ha- have a, have a, uh, a road to Damascus moment and really, really be changed <laughs> uh, and become the great advocate for, for sexual freedom. Well, yeah. And you know, Christina, you've isolated the, the sort of queerness of that particular transgression, which I feel like I haven't heard anyone really talk about in its specifics, right? Like the idea of like a man at middle age watching like a kind of beautiful younger man, kind of beautiful, you know, objective, yeah, beautiful. <laughs> you know a beautiful younger man, like have, sex with his wife like it's a you know sweet i i wonder where on the kinsey scale we could place mr falwell i have to say i i had a moment before like fully washing my body out with holy water that where i would it kind of made me like him more i'm like good for you you found this person yeah you you know had a dream for what you wanted and you made it happen like yeah i'm kind of happy for him but then he threw his wife under the bus in his explanation of it so i can go back to hating him that's all the time we have for this topic (laughs) (laughs) well listeners um why don't you write in and let us know if you think jerry falwell jr is the future of queer sexual expression um (laughs) or not like help help christina decide um and otherwise i think we will leave this topic there for now All right, um, that's about it for the show today. But before we go, we will do our usual updates to the gay agenda. Uh, Christina, why don't you kick us off? So I 
am recommending a documentary called Ahead of the Curve. Um, it's not out on streaming just yet, but I suspect it will be. It's out at uh, doing a film festival tour right now. Um, the documentary is about Franco Stevens, who founded Deneuve magazine, the first major lesbian magazine um, that then turned into Curve after Catherine Deneuve sued them for everything they were worth, um, which uh, forms the sort of climax of the film. Um, but it's a really beautiful documentary about lesbian history, about queer media, and about the struggles of people who are trying to keep those things alive um, in the year 2020. For me, part of the pleasure of watching it was just seeing so many beautiful queer people um, from so many phases of history. I'll say it also gave me a lot to think about in terms of the word lesbian and what it means to try to create spaces and, and publications for and about lesbian women and, and how to try to make that inclusive, but also specific. So it gave me a lot to think about. It was beautiful to watch. Again, it's called Ahead of the Curve. And if you find yourself uh, drawn to lesbian history for, for whatever reason, whether you identify as a lesbian or not, I highly recommend it. That sounds fantastic. That that makes me want to put on the gay agenda your piece from a few years ago that that sorted through the question of the word lesbian and 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 queer women and and sort of that whole debate. I wonder would you would you update it now based on this? Do you think? Well, actually, so I guess this maybe I should technically disclose this. The filmmakers actually called me after I wrote that piece mm. to talk to me about it, mm-hmm. and then you know I didn't hear from them for two years, and now here's their documentary. Um, But they were sort of, I guess, in the beginning stages of conceptualizing what this film would be and how to talk about that kind of stuff. And um, the film, uh, you know, Franco struggles during the film about what do queer people need now and what do the lesbians of today need? And maybe it's not a print magazine. Maybe it's not one that's exclusively for lesbians, although the magazine was always very inclusive of, you know, many other identities. But but yeah, I mean, I that's definitely a question the the idea of language and and how to define a, a community that feels inclusive but also specific is a challenge that, you know, a, a question I still think about and and a challenge that I still face when I'm trying to, you know, make a party or a Facebook event mm-hmm. or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um Ramon, what do you got? The poet and performance artist John Giorno was one of those sort of like great New York types, like the kind of person who was just floating around New York and sort of hard to define. He died last year, but he has left behind a memoir. Um, You may know John Giorno because he was immortalized in Andy Warhol's film Sleep. It's sort of a five hour shot of a nude man asleep in bed. And Great Demon Kings, which is Giorno's memoir, is Definitely not a sleepy affair. <laughs> it is a really gossipy, really name-droppy, really sexy book. He slept with a lot of very well-known people, <laughs> including Robert Rauschenberg, William S. Burroughs, Allen Ginsberg, and Andy Warhol. I'm going to read you a little snippet from an excerpt that ran in New York Magazine about Andy Warhol. Quote, He had a secret reputation as a shoe fetishist. For years, he designed shoe ads for Bergdorf Goodman, I. Miller, and Bonwit Teller. There was Andy Warhol on his hands and knees, licking my Abercrombie & Fitch loafers. Mm. It only gets better from there. 
So, you know what? Love it. If you're in need of like a lighthearted romp through recent gay history, <laughs> John Giorno's Great Demon Kings. It sounds like he was like the Forrest Gump of gay men yeah, of a certain exactly. time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's a great, like a very filthy Forrest Gump. <laughs> That's wonderful. Um, Brian, what are you thinking about this month? Yeah, well, speaking of romps through gay history, that's a perfect segue into to my recommendation. Um, so uh, there is a project that recently um, came online called Mapping the Gay Guides, and it's this a digital humanities project from uh, these two historians, Eric Gonzaba and Amanda Reagan. And what they've done is they've taken these really fascinating um uh, travel guides that were written for gay people, uh, and they focus primarily on gay men at this point uh, during the '60s and '70s. Um, and they, what they did was they were sort of like green books for the African American community in the in the previous decades to that. Uh, whereas they listed um, gay spaces all around the country that you could go visit. So if you were on on a road trip you know, cross country or whatever, it would tell you if there was a bathhouse or a bar or a a restaurant that was skewed gay, you know, in whatever town you happen to be passing through. Um, and these were called the Bob uh, Damron address books, I should say. Um, and anyway, these two historians have taken uh, those books and put them on a, a historical map. So you can sort of toggle through the various years and see uh, the gay community in various cities grow and shrink um, over time. And then you can also go in and learn uh, about some of the spaces that, that were there. Um, it's The project itself is really fun to play with, and I also wanted to recommend a uh, Q&A that Madeline Ducharam, our colleague, um, did for Outward uh, with, with one of the historians, Amanda, um, where you can dig into more about, about the process and the research that they've done and what they hope um, it can do for queer historians and queer people as well. So we'll put that link up on the show page. But um, it's called Mapping the Gay Guides, and you can just Google it and, and find it and check out uh, or have your own romp through gay history. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And it sounds especially great in a moment where we can't like trout, we can't actually get out of the house and travel to be reminded of, you know, how travel worked in a previous moment. Seems really interesting. I know. I wish those existed now for contemporary gay spaces. Especially as they're like vanishing in our yeah. cities, right? Yeah. Well, our spaces are vanishing. So that's one thing that's nice that this, you know, help is helpful to maybe, I don't know, make you feel a little bit better about that, you know, it's it's changed over time always. But also, yeah, I feel like you go and Google for like gay bars in whatever town and everything is still like a GeoCities website for yeah. some reason. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 100%. So maybe we should get on, maybe there's a, a market niche for uh, let's create like a, a good, solid, like Lonely Planet book. Um, yeah, maybe that's our spinoff project yeah, to fund our. Yeah, I, like <laughs> I like that. Well, that's about it for this month. Please send us your feedback and topic ideas at outwardpodcast at slate.com or via Facebook or Twitter at Slate Outward. Our producer is Daniel Schrader. June Thomas is the senior managing producer of Slate Podcast. And while she's not an ace, she's surely aces with us. If you like Outward, please subscribe in your podcast app. Tell your friends about it. Rate and review the show so others can find it. Outward will be back in your feeds October 21st. See you guys. Bye. Bye.
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.